Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, January 16th, twenty. 19. We're going to do another uh, Phil Johnson sermon. He's doing a little mini-series on warning against false teachers and false doctrine. This one's a little of, of an outlier, but well worth a listen. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward for consumption by the average evangelicals, far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. It's just just a general mess out there. And it is not my mere opinion that uh, false doctrine is something that is dangerous. This is something that is explicitly taught in the pages of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, and it's you know a recurring theme in practically all of the books of the New Testament. In fact, Phil Johnson will, in the sermon that you're about to listen to, note uh, which book of the Bible is the only book in the New Testament that doesn't warn to one degree or another about false doctrine and false teachers. So uh, today we'll be doing a light episode. We're going to be listening to a sermon by Phil Johnson titled Paul's Rebuke of Peter. Paul's Rebuke of Peter. And this kind of fits into that uh, overarching uh, mini-series that he's doing on the uh, the dangers of false teachers. So let's go ahead and get to it. Here's Phil Johnson. All right. Well, last week we looked at Acts 20, where Paul gave his farewell address to the Ephesian elders and told them to keep a close watch on themselves and the doctrine. And I wanted to come back and sort of follow that up. I promised you a short series of messages with a similar theme 
a message that's aimed mainly at church leaders, but helpful to you and things you need to know as well, even if you're not a church leader, because from time to time people will come and ask you for advice. How do I find a good church? What are the characteristics of a, of a solid church? And this is one of them, that uh, the elders of a church need to, need to be men who are on guard against wolves. I had Paul read such a long passage of Scripture this morning just to sort of uh, give you a taste for how much material there is in the New Testament about this subject. Every one of the New Testament epistles, with the singular exception, I think, of Philemon, talks about the dangers of false teachers in the church. And it's one of those things that people, particularly in our era, in this postmodern time when when truth is supposed to be determined by how you feel about something and, and truth is perceived widely as a, a matter of individual perspective, people don't like it when somebody says, no, 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 that thing you're teaching is wrong. That's like the worst thing you can do in the church today, and yet it's one of the things the New Testament says uh, church leaders need to be able to do. Man's not qualified to be an elder unless he is is skilled and gifted uh, to answer those who refute the truth with errors. And so I want to look at a text this morning uh, that talks about an incident where this actually happened. Galatians chapter 2. We looked at this years ago, and it occurred to me that, you know, this is the singular incident in the New Testament where, where you see crop up false teachers on the one hand, an apostle Peter who doesn't respond the way he should to the false teachers, and another apostle, Paul, corrects him, and uh, it's an interesting passage. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 11 through 14. This is one of the most amazing and unique passages of Scripture anywhere in the New Testament. It's unique for several reasons. In the first place, here we find a narrative section in one of the epistles. This is historical and biographical material, and that in and of itself is unusual. Most of the content, especially in Paul's letters, is personal and instructive. It's didactic, meaning that it's written with a purpose to teach, or else it's hortatory, which means that Paul is exhorting. He's urging his readers to take a specific course of action. That's how he normally writes, and he doesn't like to talk about himself. He's forced to in several places, and this is one of them. But usually he's either exhorting or teaching us. Uh, in fact, let me say this another way. Most of Paul's writing to the church is filled with persuasion, correction, personal encouragement, and instruction. You know, admonitions to the church as opposed to historical narratives or biographical, autobiographical material about himself. You normally will find the historical and narrative portions of the New Testament in the Gospels and the book of Acts. The epistles are normally written, not just Paul's epistles, but John's as well, uh, and Peter's, written normally so that the stress is on second-person pronouns, you rather than third-person account of events in history. But this section of Galatians is actually one of the longest and most important historical narratives that you find anywhere in the writings of Paul. And it's unique for a second reason as well. This is a frank and fairly blunt description from the Apostle Paul about an incident where he and the Apostle Peter clashed. 
And Paul had to get in Peter's face and tell him to straighten up, which, you know, Peter was kind of used to because Jesus did that to him all the time. But Paul doesn't try to tone down the facts of what happened here. He tells the whole story kind of -of matter-of-factly, and he doesn't really even add any details or disclaimers like you would expect from an academic person today, you know, to try to soften the harshness of this incident or to show Peter in a better light or, you know, here first let me say what's good about Peter before I tell you what I disagree with. He doesn't do any of that. This is an unusually straightforward account of a conflict between two apostles. And Paul is not telling this story in order to boast either. He doesn't have any shallow personal motive for recounting this incident. He's making a point about doctrine, not about people. This is a deadly serious issue with the Apostle Paul, and while it's perfectly clear that he held no grudge against Peter, he wasn't going to try to make the wickedness of what Peter did on this occasion look any better than it really was, just so that Peter could save face or come off with his apostolic dignity intact. And I have a feeling even Peter himself would appreciate this. That's why I had Paul read from Peter about false teachers. Peter hated false teachers too. It just didn't show up right in this incident. And you'll see why, I think. But I don't think Paul was concerned about any of those personal issues. He didn't care about how this made him look or how it made Peter look. That wasn't the issue. He's not thinking about what might be politically correct or sweet-sounding, at least not here in this context. He's concerned about one thing and one thing only, and it's the truth of the gospel. And he's very concerned about it because it was under attack there in the Galatian churches. And since the the gospel was still under attack there, and the issue was still the same issue that caused Paul and Peter to have this conflict, Paul says absolutely nothing that would mitigate or tone down his condemnation of Peter's behavior. He's very, very blunt and deliberately so. So let me read this whole account Another long passage of Scripture here, but I'm going to read it anyway, verses 11 through 21, and we'll focus this morning only on verses 11 through 14, but I want you to hear the larger context. Here's the story, starting in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. 
For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, uh, what I want to do is call your attention to a few significant lessons before we get into a systematic study of this passage. First of all, this whole incident makes it clear for us, doesn't it, that, that Peter did not hold any position of primacy over the rest of the apostles. As a matter of fact, there is no evidence anywhere in the New Testament that Peter ever held authority over anyone local church or, or congregation or anything like that. James seems to have been the leader of the Jerusalem church. That's why he's referred to here in the passage we're going to be looking at. You'll see that Peter claims no authority over Paul when it comes to the leadership of the church at Antioch. So it's pretty hard. It's impossible, really, to fit the Roman Catholic notion of papal supremacy into this passage and then make any meaningful sense out of it. I make that point because it's important. A lot of people are confused about the role of Peter in the early church, and the Catholic Church says he was the Pope, he was the bishop over all the apostles, and here it's pretty clear that's not the case. And in fact, one of the major reasons Paul tells this story is to debunk the claim that his authority, Paul's authority, was a lesser authority than the other apostles. He's already denied earlier in this epistle to the Galatians. He's denied that he derived his authority or his apostolic commission from Peter or from any other apostle. He got it directly from Christ. In fact, he starts off this whole epistle. Look back at Galatians 1, verse 1, making that very point. Paul, an apostle, not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ. And by the time you get to the midpoint of chapter 2, Paul has worked hard already to establish the fact that he received his apostleship and even his knowledge of the gospel directly from Christ by special revelation, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. The gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In verses 16 and 17, I did not immediately consult with anyone. He's talking about right after his conversion. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. He wasn't in any way indebted to the other apostles. Verse 19, I saw no other none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And he's technically not even one of the twelve. And in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul tells how he had personally come to Jerusalem in order to challenge the, the doctrine of the Judaizers. And he's careful to make it clear that he is the equal of every other apostle. He even speaks in a way that suggests he wasn't really all that impressed with the leadership of the Jerusalem church. And Paul isn't doing this to boast. He's doing it to defend his apostolic authority because his message was under attack in Galatians, in the Galatian churches, by people who said, yeah, he's not a real apostle. And so he's saying, yes, I am, and I'm equal to the other apostles. And what Paul is stressing here is a very simple point 
that he was in no way dependent on the other apostles. He's not setting himself against them. And in fact, he makes a point of saying they affirmed him, and they all agreed when it came to the doctrine. So the other apostles had no authority over them, over him. He's not subservient to them. He didn't need to seek their approval for his apostleship or his teaching because he was appointed by Christ, commissioned directly by Christ to do what he was doing. <clears throat> now again, he's not claiming to be distinct from the other apostles. They served the same Lord. They formally affirmed the same gospel. They were equals on the same team. But Paul is in no way subordinate to them. And this story about his conflict with Peter reinforces that very same point, which is the point he's been making since verse 1 of chapter 1. Here is living proof that Paul was not answerable to Peter. They were both equally answerable to Christ. And when Peter slipped up, when Peter did something he shouldn't have done, Paul even had sufficient authority to rebuke Peter publicly. And all of this demonstrates clearly, <clears throat> doesn't it, that the apostolic church had no pope. There's not even a single dominant apostle. The massive hierarchy that you see in the Roman Catholic Church today has absolutely no basis in Scripture. And nowhere is that more obvious than right here in Galatians 2. Here are a couple more things to observe about this passage. Remember that when the apostles wrote the inspired text of Scripture, they wrote it without error in the original manuscripts. Peter himself describes that process in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, where he says, "...no prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." The, the Spirit of God sovereignly guided the writers of Scripture so that what they wrote were the very words of God, the words themselves. When they wrote Scripture, they were infallible. And not only that, but before the canon of Scripture was closed, they also taught with infallible authority. Thank you. Peter, uh, or Paul rather, speaks of his oral teaching at the church of Thessalonica as the Word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. You received, when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, he's talking about his verbal teaching, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. So he's saying when the apostles taught doctrine in the early church, what they were teaching was the Word of God. It's the same sub substance that has been preserved for us in the written Word of God. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul adds this to the Thessalonians, "...stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter." So the apostles taught with infallible authority, and their teaching was not to be violated. That was part of the problem in, in uh, the Galatian churches. People had come along and said, look, Paul gave you some of the truth, but not all of it. And they were undermining the apostolic message. But that principle, that the apostles were infallible when they taught doctrine, it doesn't mean that all the personal actions of the apostles were always perfect. They were still flawed and sinful men. And in, in this account, you see proof of that. Peter needed to be rebuked. And Paul rebuked him to his face in front of everybody. Now, I suppose I've read this account 
literally hundreds of times, but it still amazes me, doesn't it, you? I mean, the idea that Paul would rebuke Peter in public and then write about it so straightforwardly, it's really breathtaking. This is something no one would do in this postmodern age that we live in. Kind of hurts our sensibilities even to read this, doesn't it? It, it, it? And if that's the way you feel, you need to get over it. Let Scripture correct your attitude. Don't come to the Bible with the idea that you're more sophisticated or more enlightened than the prophets and apostles who wrote it. But let's also admit that this account is completely out of step with the attitude towards conflict resolution that prevails nowadays in the 21st century. In fact, if you try this approach to resolving your doctrinal conflicts, even here at Grace Church, several dozen people will probably take you aside privately and try to tone you down. And let's be honest, in most cases, they'd be right. What Paul is describing here is an extremely unusual situation. He's not giving us a pattern for conflict resolution. But I can still imagine that if if Paul and Peter were in a typical evangelical church of the 21st century, and Paul did this under these circumstances that you have right here, someone I think today would probably take him aside and say, now, brother, was that really a loving thing to do? (laughs) I mean, after all, Matthew 18, right? You should have gone privately to Peter first. And in fact, that's what would happen in the best of churches. In some parts of today's evangelical subculture, Paul would really get roasted for an approach like this. You know, you're going to shatter Peter's self-esteem. You could do a lot more good if you'd just be less confrontive. What's the big deal about the Judaizers anyway? They worship the same Lord you do. do. Do you really think it's right to curse them and say that they aren't really authentic Christians? All your differences with them are just doctrinal technicalities. Minor differences. Get the beam of harshness out of your own eye before you start trying to pick specks of doctrine out of everybody else's eyes. Most people don't understand the principle of justification anyway. What, what are you saying? That people have to be professional theologians before they really understand the gospel? Why don't you be more tolerant? After all, Jesus said the world would know us by our love, not by the soundness of our doctrine. You've probably heard all of those arguments. And in fact, some of you have even used those arguments with me. (laughs) And I appreciate your candor. I do. And I wonder if Paul heard similar kinds of rebukes. Many people today seem to think that showing kindness is always more important than getting doctrine right. And it isn't always. Sometimes it is, but not always. Listen to the words of J. Gresham Machen. He was a great Presbyterian theologian at the start of the 20th century who watched the rise of liberalism begin to destroy mainline denominations, and he, he, he wrote against that. Here's what he said. Men tell us that our preaching should be positive and not negative, that we can preach the truth without attacking error. But if we follow that advice, he says, we shall have to close our Bible and desert its teachings. The New Testament is a polemic book almost from beginning to end. It is when men have felt compelled to take a stand against error that they have risen to the really great heights in the celebration of the truth. 
That is true historically, by the way. Now, I'll grant you that there are people out there, some of them making a lot of noise these days, who in a totally perverse way just love to fight over doctrinal fine points. There are people like that. They do it with a sinister kind of glee. They seem to have a a sinful thirst for controversy and a perverse love of conflict. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verses 22 through 26, that we're not supposed to be like that. We're not supposed to be contentious, pugnacious people. He says we're supposed to pursue peace with the people of God and avoid foolish questions that stir up strife and correct people's errors as patiently and as meekly as possible. And all of that is true. But here in Galatians 2, we see that there is this other side also. Sometimes we do have to get militant. Some errors in doctrine are significant. They're not all picayune little small things. Some errors are hugely significant because they undermine the clarity of the gospel so that not every point of doctrine is a fine point, even the ones that are hard to understand. They're not always insignificant fine points. And sometimes the majority of people will follow the worst kinds of error. That's what was happening in in Galatia. And it's what happened many times in church history. In the 4th century, when the Arian conflict first arose, and Arius was saying, Jesus is not God, He's a created being. There was even a brief time when the vast majority of people in the visible church seemed to favor that heresy. Even the bishops of the church almost uniformly went along with it. It was a denial of the deity of Christ, a serious, serious error. And only one man, Athanasius, stood against it. Popular opinion is not a reliable gauge of how dangerous an error is. It's very clear here in Galatians 2. Paul is the only one who's willing to confront the Judaizers and their false doctrine. Everybody else was intimidated by them. But Paul knew this was not an insignificant error. And he was absolutely right about that. What seemed like a small point of doctrine to everybody else besides Paul it was, a, was actually a major issue. What everyone else was willing to overlook rather than contend for ultimately was a lie that undermined the whole point of the gospel message. Because here, in case you don't remember it, this is the question the Judaizers' doctrine raised. Is the message of salvation a message about what I must do for Christ, or is it a message about what He has done for me? That's the hinge on which the gospel swings. Is the gospel a message about what I need to do to make God happy, or is it a message about what He has done in order to save me? And how you answer that question reveals whether you're really a true Christian or not. So this is a vital issue. It may seem like theological trivia at first glance, but as far as the gospel is concerned, there is no more vital issue than Paul was fighting for here. If you think any part of salvation is earned by the merit of our works, or if you think eternal life is acquired by the observations, uh, observation of a, a ritual, or if you think uh, you can do anything to pay for your own sins, or to deserve God's forgiveness, or to earn a right standing before God, then if you think any of those things, you have in effect embraced a false gospel, a different gospel. 
And Paul understood that. That is the whole point of his dispute with Peter here in Galatians 2. And let me be clear about this. Peter agreed with Paul as to the doctrine. They weren't on different pages doctrinally. There was no argument between these two apostles on matters of principle. Peter knew very well that the doctrine of the Judaizers was wrong. He knew that. After all, this was the very lesson of Cornelius's conversion, which Peter oversaw. Acts 10.15, what God has made clean, do not call common. In Peter's own words from his testimony in Acts 10, verse 28, God has shown me, this is Peter speaking, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That was years before this Galatians episode. Peter knew this, recounting that very same incident in Acts 15, verses 8 and 9. Peter said, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, that is Cornelius and his family Gentiles, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So, by faith, that's sola fide. This was a a vital lesson that God had expressly taught personally to Peter. Peter knew there was nothing unclean about this. That's why he was doing it before these false teachers came on the scene. He's just intimidated by them. For whatever reason, he didn't want to fight with them, so he acceded to their false views. But while Peter and Paul had no disagreement over the point of doctrine... They ended up disagreeing badly over how they ought to respond to these false teachers. Peter compromised rather than confront the error of the Judaizers. I don't think Peter had fully grasped what Paul absolutely understood, that this teaching from these Judaizers was dangerously false, fatally wrong, because it changed the gospel message into a completely different message. It was a false gospel. And I'd say the same thing is true today, by the way, for the very same reason with regard to the Roman Catholic doctrine of salvation. More and more evangelicals nowadays want to embrace Roman Catholics as our true brothers and sisters in Christ. But for the same reason the Judaizers' doctrine corrupted the gospel so badly, likewise with Roman Catholicism, it inserts human works religious rituals and external acts into the formula for justification. And therefore, it destroys the purity of God's grace in the process. What you end up with is a false gospel, and that is spiritually deadly. And that's what was going on in Galatia. Paul saw it clearly. Evidently, Paul was the only one who saw things so clearly, and that is precisely what led him to take this radical course of action with Peter. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Uh, the balance of today's sermon by uh, Phil Johnson on Paul's rebuke of the Apostle Peter. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you are in the wrong place. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furtick then asked us to do the same. Uh-huh. Right. Furtick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furtick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? Well, my book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all. That's right. Not only did I burn my plows like Elisha, but I took my oxen and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute. Well, I did it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Furtick. Greater than or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. 
Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, false doctrine is a real threat to the church because the Bible actually teaches that it's a real threat to the church. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. And rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at twenty four ninety five a month. From there, Master Gunner, forty nine ninety five a month. And then Quartermaster, ninety nine ninety five a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Uh, if you would like to become a patron on Patreon, you can do so by clicking on the Become a Patron button. If you would like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's sermon by Phil Johnson on Paul's public rebuke of Peter. Here we go. Now, that's really enough introduction. We'll come back to some of those ideas as we go through this passage, but let's get into the passage itself. There are three lessons we can learn from this episode that every one of us needs to apply in our spiritual lives. And I'm going to give you them one point at a time this morning, so be ready to write. These are the lessons I want you to draw from this passage. Number one is this. It's not enough to know the truth. You have to practice what you believe. That's lesson number one. It's not enough just to know the truth, you have to practice what you believe. Notice 
Paul has no hesitation about cursing the doctrine of the Judaizers and even pronouncing anathemas against these men personally. Let them be accursed, he says twice in chapter 1. But he never accuses Peter of being a heretic. The problem with Peter was not that he believed the wrong thing. He understood the gospel perfectly, as we've already seen. Peter knew full well because God had personally taught him that the Gentiles did not need circumcision in order to be saved. He knew that. Peter's sin was hypocrisy, not heresy. Got to keep that straight because a lot of people today want to condemn anyone who doesn't respond correctly to false teachers as if that guy's a false teacher as well. It's not always the case. And notice what Paul describes here, verse 12. As long as no one was around except, you know, Paul and the people of the church at Antioch, Peter was freely eating with the Gentiles. He had no problem with it, and it was clear. He fully understood that what God had called clean, he was not to treat as if it was unclean. And any person, Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond or free, any person who believes in Christ is justified by faith alone and clean, cleansed from their sin, forgiven, fully cleansed from every kind of sin, every kind of ceremonial defilement. That person is united with Christ and a member of the same body as any believing Jewish person. And Peter knew that. He knew it before anybody else did because he was the spiritual midwife at Cornelius' conversion in Caesarea, and Peter saw with his own eyes when Cornelius was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues just like those believers at Pentecost. And it was real tongues, by the way, not just, you know, weird sort of syllables. He spoke in tongues, languages. And it was Peter himself in Acts 10.34 who opened his mouth... This is... Quoting directly from Acts 10.34, he opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. It was Peter who preached the gospel to Cornelius. And Acts 10 verses 45 and 46 describe how Peter and the other Jewish men who were there with Cornelius were all astonished that God would pour out His Holy Spirit on the Gentiles. They'd been raised to think of Gentiles as unclean. It was Peter who baptized Cornelius and first welcomed him into the church. And it was Peter who went back and explained to the other apostles that God had visited the Gentiles and given them the Holy Spirit too. And then in the Jerusalem council at Acts 15, it was Peter who recalled this incident with Cornelius in order to defend the gospel against these guys, the Judaizers. Acts 15, verse 7, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so... Peter understood really better than anyone the facts about why the doctrine of the Judaizers was an error, a false gospel. But Peter just doesn't seem to have the stomach for a fight with these guys over this doctrine. And we don't know, and even Paul doesn't really speculate about what was going on in Peter's mind. I, I don't know. I don't know what was Peter was thinking, but it seems obvious that 
he didn't really fathom how serious this error was. Part of that may be because he knew these men. They were almost certainly well-known to Peter, perhaps even friends of his from the Jerusalem church. But they seem to have had a great influence in the Jerusalem church. Paul says in verse 12 that they came from James, which means they probably came as some kind of official representatives of the Jerusalem church. This is a delegation sent out by James. The missions committee or something like that had sent them. They had no apostolic authority, of course, but they had some tie to James, and therefore they weren't anyone who Peter would likely have regarded as adversaries, enemies. Clearly, he didn't want to have them as critics, and so he bowed to their preferences, even though he knew they were wrong. And by the way, Peter had apparently had run-ins with these men or others like them in the past, right after the conversion of Cornelius. Peter was challenged by some Jewish men in the Jerusalem church who were... And think about this. Everybody, practically everybody, if not every single person in the Jerusalem church, had a Jewish background. So circumcision was a non-issue to them. They'd all been... All the men had been circumcised, you know, when they were eight days old. So they weren't being asked to add anything to their faith in order to be saved. So this error, which really affected the Gentiles in Galatia, would have been kind of a non-issue in Jerusalem. But Peter had had run-ins with either these guys or people like them, because Acts 11, verses 2 and 3 says, "...when Peter went up to Jerusalem..." This is after the Cornelius event. uh, "...the circumcision party criticized him, saying, "'You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them.'" So he'd been criticized for this very thing. And since Peter himself was Jewish, even Peter was kind of shocked by what God was doing in the conversion of Cornelius. And he understood the objection of these Jewish men who had been raised to think of Gentiles as unclean. Luke says in Acts 11 verse 4 that Peter rehearsed the matter with them from the beginning. He told the whole story of Cornelius' conversion and the sheet that came down from heaven and, and he had to kill and eat all these unclean animals. And, and he told them the whole thing. It says, expounded it in order unto them. He went through the whole story showing how God himself had sovereignly orchestrated the circumstances of Cornelius' conversion. He told them all about all of this how Cornelius was filled with the Holy Spirit and he spoke in tongues. And then he said this, verse 17 of Acts 11, "'If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way?' I think that's kind of funny. It's like, what could I do about it? You know, God did this, not me. Now, maybe... Peter had simply grown weary of conflict with these guys or guys like them. Maybe he was just trying to be gracious to them, knowing that they would be offended if he ate with the Gentiles. Whatever he was thinking, whatever his reasons, Scripture makes it clear that Peter was being a hypocrite, but he wasn't being a heretic. His problem was not that he doubted the truth of the gospel. It was that he was failing to live it out. Verse 13 of our text Paul twice uses the expression uh, expressions that, that uh, come from the Greek word hypocrisis. That is the Greek source of the English word hypocrisy, hypocrisis. It's a word that refers to play acting, and it carries the same 
negative moral overtones as the English word hypocrisy. This is what Paul accuses Peter of, playing the hypocrite. Paul knew that Peter knew better. But it's not enough to know the truth. You have to obey it as well. Hypocrisy can undermine the truth of the gospel just as surely as heresy can. And that's exactly what happened here. Other people began to follow Peter's bad example, including even Barnabas, who was Paul's partner and companion. Verse 13, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And Paul's tone suggests, I think, that he was personally and particularly betrayed by that because Barnabas knew better, and so did Peter. They were just being hypocrites, probably because they wanted to avoid conflict with these false teachers. They might have even convinced themselves that they were merely accommodating the scruples of these weaker brothers and... uh, so, so, you know, they're just being kind. They, they wanted to avoid conflict. These were men who were guests of the church in Antioch, men who professed Christ. There were a lot of good reasons or good-sounding reasons to be as polite and obliging as possible towards the Judaizers. They were apparently an official delegation from James. Surely you have to treat them politely. Now, I understand the pressure Peter was under, don't you? It's tempting at times to avoid conflict by just refusing to challenge error. But when it's an error that undermines the central core of gospel truth, you cannot do that. It's not enough to know the truth. You have to practice what you believe. And that includes defending the gospel. Here's the problem. By trying to avoid conflict with these Judaizers... Peter was slighting the Gentile believers. He was treating these Gentile brethren with disdain, refusing to eat with them. His compromise was inflicting wounds on the Gentile believers who were already confused about this issue, so it's also undermining their faith. When an apostle, of all people, openly stays away from their table as if they were ceremonially unclean, They had to wonder, am I some kind of second-class Christian? And they began to doubt whether they, the Gentiles began to doubt whether they had done enough to be fully justified. And that was the kind of thing that let the Judaizers' false doctrine begin to make headway. And, And the persistence of that doubt may be why Paul retells the story here. Without putting any kind of spin on it that that might minimize Peter's embarrassment, because perhaps the Judaizers were now reminding the Galatians of how Peter acted to suggest that there was apostolic sympathy for their views. And so Paul tells the whole story unvarnished just to debunk that argument. Peter had, in effect, unintentionally allowed the Judaizers to re-erect the middle wall of partition that had been broken down in Christ. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. He himself, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that is, the ceremonial law, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so Peter's hypocrisy had sinister and infectious results. It it hurt good people, and it influenced good men to do evil. 
The Apostle Paul's response when he learned of this behavior or else saw it with his own eyes, his response embodies lesson number two that we glean from this account. First, in case you didn't get it, number one, it's not enough to know the truth. You have to practice what you believe. Now, number two, it's not enough to be positive about the truth. You also have to confront error. It's not good enough just to be positive about the truth. You also have to confront the error. There have always been people in the church who think everything negative is automatically bad. You know, I mean, why can't we be more positive? Why do we have to be critical of people who we disagree with? Can't we just be positive about the, uh, what we believe and, and just let the Lord sort out the differences? You may have thought that way yourself. And let me say, first of all, that's a better attitude to have than the opposite extreme. There are some people who are always negative. They thrive on conflict. They take pride in criticizing others. And the more people they criticize, the happier they are. And there's a lot of them on the Internet. You know the type. Some of them actually come here from time to time and hold up picket signs outside our church. One guy used to drive around here in a van with an ugly, sloppy, hand-lettered list of all the people he disagreed with on the panel of his van. Some of you will remember that as if he derived some kind of honor from the controversy. There there is something seriously wrong with anyone who takes delight in stirring up strife like that. It's it's definitely a lopsided attitude that you have to guard against, especially here in a church where we, we do often stress the vital importance of sound doctrine. Let's not go to a ridiculous extreme with it. Use discernment and think critically, but don't become the kind of person who actually delights in fault-finding. Now, in all honesty, though, I think the greater fault in the evangelical movement, the broad evangelical movement today, is the opposite. People don't want to discipline themselves to think critically, and they certainly don't want the hassle of having to defend doctrine against error and, and so millions have bought into the notion that we should just always be positive and let's never confront any error head on. That is a totally unbiblical point of view. It actually fits quite well with the postmodern attitude towards truth and authority. Any postmodernist will actually tell you that if you believe anything too strongly, you're simply being arrogant so that certainty is actually a bigger problem for people who think with postmodern values today, to be certain about something is actually worse than being in error. For some people, actually for many people today, there's simply no error that is serious enough to warrant a confrontation between two people who profess to be Christians. You, if, you, if you point out any error, somebody's going to come along and say, now, brother, you don't... You, The world will know us by our love. Don't tell that guy he's wrong. So we've come to the point in the church where false teachers can literally advocate anything they want and teach their error unmolested. But if you speak up and suggest that this idea is seriously unbiblical, you'll be criticized as unloving. Paul had no fear of that in this instance, even though it was Peter whom he had to confront. 
because the gospel was under attack. And that superseded any other danger in Paul's mind, including a a public rift between two apostles. The gospel was more important than an external show of artificial unity among the apostles. And whatever else you get from this passage, I hope you understand that it utterly debunks the notion of people who say that the appearance of unity is always more important than the defense of the truth. Sometimes, always, when the gospel is at stake, it's essential to confront error and to contend for the truth. And nobody nobody who's sane likes to fight and argue, but at the same time, no one who genuinely loves the truth would deny that some truths are worth fighting for, and potentially even dying for. The gospel is one of those truths. We have to contend not only for the gospel itself, but also for the clarity and accuracy with which it is proclaimed. When What Peter was doing here muddied the truth of the gospel. He wasn't preaching a false gospel. But he was giving a bad example that was propping up people who were preaching a false gospel. And what was at stake was the truth of the gospel. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, Paul says, I said to Cephas before them all. And I think Paul means that he said these things to Peter within earshot of every Christian who was present that day. He says to him, if you, though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He he confronted Peter for his hypocrisy, and he did it so that everyone who had witnessed Peter's hypocrisy would also know about Paul's rebuke, because the sin had been public and it had impacted the whole congregation. The rebuke needed to be public as well, and Paul turned this into a teaching opportunity. And that brings us to a third lesson we learn from this passage. First, it's not enough to know the truth. You have to practice what you believe. Second, it's not enough to be positive about the truth. You also have to confront the error. And now quickly, third, it's not enough to be on guard for yourself. You have to be concerned for the safety of all the flock. And this goes back to the passage we looked at last week. It is extremely significant that Paul rebuked Peter in front of everyone. This was not a mistake. It wasn't a bad thing for him to do. It was vital for him to do it. This kind of public rebuke is very rare in the New Testament, and it ought to be, because normally when we see a brother in a fault, we are supposed to go to him privately. That is Matthew eighteen fifteen. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's the, that's the first rule. That's how Jesus said to deal with a sinning brother. Brother. But notice, Jesus there is dealing primarily with personal offenses and private sins. If your brother sins against you, sins that are private should be dealt with privately as as, as, as long as you possibly can. There are those sins may have to be told to the church if the sinning brother refuses after multiple exhortations in the presence of multiple witnesses, if he refuses to repent. That's the way church discipline works. You start privately. You try to keep it private. But there are certain kinds of public sins that deserve public rebukes. In some instances, 
And especially when it's a church leader or an elder who sins, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.20 that elders should be rebuked in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. That's not talking about picayune private sins again. It's talking about someone who sins in a way that affects the flock. He needs to be rebuked in front of the flock because sin and the sin of a church leader especially has such far-reaching effects among the people they lead that rebuke needs to be public. And Paul's concern here was for the welfare of the whole flock, and that outweighed his concern for Peter's personal feelings. The public rebuke here was appropriate, and, and Paul was right to do it because Peter's hypocrisy had affected the entire congregation, including Barnabas. And sometimes a faithful shepherd needs to sound a clear alarm. That's what Paul did here. He's simply following the advice he gave to those Ephesian elders that we looked at last week about keeping, keeping on guard against wolves. Not to say that Peter was a wolf. Peter was, as I said, a hypocrite, not a heretic, but he was enabling the wolves. I'm glad Paul spoke up against Peter. My respect for Peter is not diminished because of the way he responded. And although Paul doesn't actually recount what Peter's response was like here in Galatians 2, you know that Peter accepted Paul's rebuke and acknowledged that Paul was right on the doctrinal issue because in 2 Peter 3.15, written after this, well after this, he refers to Paul as our beloved brother Paul, and he acknowledges the great wisdom that God graciously gave to Paul. And after this, there was no ongoing rift, and there's no evidence of any further conflict between these two apostles. Now, I confess to you, I have a hard time imagining that an incident like this could happen in the climate of the church today, 21st century church. There's just far too much pressure today to compromise with the Judaizers and to embrace them as, you know, co-belligerents in some greater moral crusade and to tone down our differences with them over the gospel. In similar circumstances today, I am I'm confident that most evangelical leaders would actually side with Peter and not with Paul, and they would argue that, you know, this is right because we need Judaizers like the Roman Catholic Church and even Judaism itself to, to be our allies in the war against abortion and the battle to fight the secularization of our culture. They are our co-belligerents, so we shouldn't pick fights with them. And in order to achieve political alliances, evangelicals in our generation have been willing to allow a lack of clarity about the gospel, and that is to the shame of the entire evangelical movement. Listen to what, listen to J. Gresham Machen one more time in something that he wrote more than 80 years ago. He said this about this incident, what a splendid cleaning up of the Gentile cities it would have been if the Judaizers had succeeded in extending to those cities the observance of the Mosaic Law. Surely Paul ought to have made common cause with leaders who were so nearly in agreement with him. Surely he ought to have applied to them the great principle of Christian unity. As a matter of fact, Machen says, Paul did nothing of the kind, and only because he and others did nothing of the kind does the Christian church exist today. Machen says Paul was certainly right. The difference 
which divided him from the Judaizers, was no mere theological subtlety. It concerned the very heart and core of the religion of Christ. And Paul's approach to a conflict like this is still the right approach. And if evangelicals in our generation don't grasp the reality of that truth and fight for the clarity of the gospel, we're going to totally lose our testimony before an unbelieving world. And in fact, I would argue that on a large scale that has already happened. And my plea to each one of you on an individual level is to be like Paul. Fight for the truth of the gospel. There is no other truth more worth fighting for. Let's pray. Father, give us courage and conviction and a commitment to the truth. And may we stand firm on the truth of your word, regardless of what might seem popular or politically correct. May we love the truth. May we hate error. And may we have both the will and the discernment to make a distinction between the two. And may our love for the truth be rooted in and a reflection of our personal love for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is truth incarnate. We pray in His name. Amen. Amen. So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy when by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>